On further reading, we cover the career of actor and notorious Hellraiser Oliver Reed. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at one of Reed's early leading man performances in 1964's The System, directed by Michael Winner. I'm Leslie Hatton, and these are my co-hosts, Doug Tilly and Liam O'Donnell. Leslie, this this actually might become as a surprise to you. This is our first Cinema Smorgasbord episode of the year 2024. We're literally in the future right now. Oh my god. Where, where are the jetpacks? We were promised jetpacks. Yeah. Specifically for 2024, we were promised <laughs> jetpacks. <laughs> I don't know, Doug. A lot could happen between literally now and 2024, including the end of the world. So I feel like you're calling your shot. And I don't know if this is a good call. You're exactly right, Liam. But I figure if the world ends, I'm unlikely to publish this as a podcast for people to listen to. Or maybe, yeah. that's, all, maybe that's all people will have. And they'll be, they'll be begging for entertainment as high quality as this episode of further reading. Um, and we can, one can only hope finally our listenership goes through the roof. I mean, to be fair, I don't understand how all that back end shit works. So whatever you say is fine. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the synopsis that I found from Wikipedia, which is accurate, but it's also not accurate. Um, so the synopsis is, in the seaside village of Wroxham, which is in England, a group of local young men mingle among the seasonal tourists in search of sexual conquests. Accurate. Near the end of one summer, the leader of the group, Tinker, played by Oliver Reed, a strolling photographer, aims to conquer a fashion model from a well-to-do family. Accurate. But he finds himself unexpectedly falling in love. Also accurate. The tables thus turned... Tinker begins to see that maybe it's not the tourists who are being used in these sexual games. Now that is accurate, but also not. It certainly gives the impression of a maliciousness from does. the Nicola character that does not exist in the actual movie. Yes, that is true. That's what I thought as well. I mean, it's more, there's a lot more to it and, and, we can get to that when we talk about some of the more specific points, but there's a lot of subtext. There's a lot more in this film about class consciousness, which I think is definitely at odds with the American title. Now I didn't realize I knew that there was an American title, which is the girl getters, which is, did you hear the disdain in my voice? <laughs> the, the girl getters. But I didn't realize that it was actually edited for an American audience um, because it is a fairly straightforward film about casual sex, mm -hmm. which in 1964 was not that common in American cinema. In fact, it wasn't really common at all. Um, it was, you know, the, the Hayes production code was still in effect, um, although it was on its way out. But it wasn't until films towards the latter part of the 60s, like um, Midnight Cowboy or um, Bonnie and Clyde, sort of pushed that envelope a little bit more. Um, but England seemed like it, 
it talked about these things a little bit more directly. Uh, this is more of a, a real, a, re a realism type of drama than one would be expecting from a title like The Girl Getters. I, I'd actually like to see the American cut and what was what was taken out. Yeah, me too as well, because like the movie is about casual sex. I mean, like that's the whole mm -hmm. movie, really. And if you're not like if they're cutting, I, I'd have just trying to guess what sequences might be cut. If you're cutting people getting dressed after presumably having sex in the movie, I mean, those are some pretty important scenes where mm -hmm. that takes place. It's a little hard to understand how that would go. I also wonder if they have the same song. Like the the main song of the movie is called The System, and you can hear them say it in, in the lyrics. Just weird to be changing the title. The I, There might be some cuts, too, in that swimming scene. Like, yeah. yeah. Nicholas definitely not, you know, dressed. I could see them cutting around it in a way that wouldn't totally disrupt the narrative but you would you would be missing the good parts if that you know what i mean well, can you see her fanny in that yeah, scene yeah <laughs> i mean well but and knowing the knowing the way those cuts work they might have cut out that whole suggestion that she didn't have clothes on in the yeah. in the first place you know what i mean yeah, like, that's maybe true that's true yeah, and American cinema did not like to have young people having any kind of fun on display. I guess that was, it's so funny to think that what would have been big in U.S. cinema at the time would have been beach party movies, right? It would have been right around that era. So the, the kind of beach party movies that you were experiencing with Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello, very different from the kind of beach party movies we're getting here, where they have effigies being burned. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Effigies of marriage, you know, in which... <laughs> I mean, in in which th that whole scene. I mean, I don't know. I guess we're not like jumping right into. No, I, it's just it, deep uh, things well, about the movie. But uh, I I left that scene thinking: Are they burning an effigy to uh, to monogamy, or are they burning an effigy to the nuclear family? Because I think <laughs> I think it's like they think they're like we'll we'll stay free and fuck forever. And mm -hmm. in reality, what they're afraid of is like this whole other thing that does involve monogamy but it's actually a much bigger issue than that i think that's part of like i was thinking about what we're the way it describes uh uh the end of the movie i i think the movie starts to at the end conflate its class and gender politics into like one mishmash and i don't know if it totally succeeds in that but but there is this sort of thing of like you know uh oliver reed's character can spend the rest of his life like um you know uh having casual sex with privileged young ladies but he'll never have like status right like mm -hmm. and if he does it too much longer he'll become a real fucking joke of what he is now like he's the king of the world now but you can only be a playboy for so long before people start to find you ridiculous or you just give up in hopelessness and just relive the old days down at the bar talking to your friends you know you think that the burning Again, we are jumping ahead, but I know that you have a lot of, of topics that we're going to try to cover, Leslie. But do you think that's a real thing? It feels like it has to be, right? It feels it feels like this is definitely taken from the real experience. Because who would come up with burning an effigy of a newly married couple in a huge, like, they even had, like, a name for it, right? Where there was, like, a march part of it. And, yeah, the and, wedding procession or something yeah, like the, that, I and, think they you call know, it. Burn the groom. I mean, it was it was wild. <laughs> It's funny, you know, I grew up um, because of Newfoundland, where I grew up, our connection with the UK is a little bit stronger than most of the rest of the country. We would celebrate 
Guy Fox Day growing up, and we would throw effigies of Guy Fox into a bonfire. It usually was just called Bonfire Night where I grew up. But I mean, I remember in school making effigies of Guy Fox to throw into the fire. But I just wonder if people in the UK just love throwing shit into fire so much that they just make a whole bunch of events based on that. <laughs> I mean, it is I, fun. I mean, you say you say the UK, but I suspect. Across Europe, there are various excuses to light things on fire. I think it's a pretty common, whether it's sports or various seasonal holidays or, you know, uh, the the migrations of different peoples. There's all kinds of reasons to burn things down, Doug. (laughs) We've all seen The Wicker Man, so. Yeah, well, that's true. true. Yeah, exactly. I think this movie is pretty interesting in terms of Oliver Reed's career. Um and where it fits in because for two reasons one uh, it was made before he did oliver um which was a pretty big role for him and it was after he did the damned which was a joseph losey film from a couple years before uh he wasn't the the lead in that um but he had a pretty significant role now he's the lead in this and he at this point already had a fan club an official fan club so he his star was ascending pretty rapidly but the other reason it's significant is before he had the bar fight that left him with the permanent facial scars so i think um to see him in the close-up shots of this film with that really kind of untouched youthful face would be pretty shocking for anybody who's only ever seen later pictures of him with scars and a beard, because he does sure. look very young and and vibrant in this movie. So I think it's a neat capsule of that time, but it also shows, you know, it, it really does show his range more than, say, The Damned, I think, or any of the Hammer films, because... It's not melodramatic, but, you know, he gets to kind of be a jerk, but he's also a funny jerk. And he's, you know, kind of a pathetic character, but you also empathize with him. So there's a lot going on. I wonder what you think. Sorry, Liam, you were saying? Uh, Mine is probably less good than yours. So I'll just say really quick. I want to push back a teeny bit on the youthful thing. He looks young compared to later Oliver Reed. But when you mm-hmm. notice that he's sharing the screen with David Hemmings, and David yeah. Hemmings looked like mm-hmm. he couldn't buy a beer at this point. You know what right. I mean? Like, oh, my God. Like, Oliver Reed yes. looks, like, young for him. But while I think he is incredibly attractive at this time, he looks old for his age still. Like, I just feel like he didn't yeah. hit the right age till he was, like, 40. And then you're like, yeah, that's what a 40-year-old guy looks like. But at this age, it's like he looks older than all of these other young men. And it's it was just more striking, for, the most striking for me for David Hemmings, who I feel very familiar with later on in his career. And I was like, who is this little child who looks like David Hemmings? <laughs> Why is David Hemmings' son in this movie? Like, what is happening right now? <laughs> it just—he looks so, like you know, uh, 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 like a tween in this movie compared yeah. to Oliver Reed, who still looks like a man. You know, he doesn't. Some, he does. Some, some people at this age don't quite look like they've developed, and he's a man in this movie. He is a full man, and I suspect he might have looked like a man since he was like sixteen years old. Honestly, he does say in that one point though, when Nicola asks him how old he is, That's and he right. says twenty-five or so. 
Yes. 20, no, he says 23 or so. So I'm going to guess that it's like, a, you know, like a divorcee who's going to be 40 for the fifth time. I mean, I think, it's, it, it's, I think he's probably older than he's actually admitting. 100%. I think that's a huge thematic element of the movie, right? You have David Hemmings. He's the new blood. He already mm-hmm. talks, you know, uh, Oliver Reed's character about every year they lose a few more, right? But then new ones are coming in. And not only is David Hemmings the new blood, you see that part later in the movie where he's like coming up with new Taking parts charge. Yeah, yeah, Taking yeah. charge, right? He's going to be the new Oliver Reed in regards to that. Yeah. But, all, and, but Oliver Reed's character, the crisis that he's going through, it's partially based on the idea that uh, as he's get getting older, a recognition of the emptiness of this kind of existence, but also that 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 internal struggle about whether it's better to be a big fish in a small pond or to see what else is out there. Right. My favorite scenes in the movie are the ones between Oliver Reed's character and the owner of the Photoshop in which he works, because then you see a real struggle where he's trying to be that clever, laid back, cool guy. But his boss, you know, he still has to kowtow. He still has to uh, yeah. bend the knee to him because his entire livelihood is based on this guy continuing to employ him so he can't be too snarky around him it's a real tightrope act and going back to what you were saying leslie like this performance is something else i mean he's so magnetic on the screen but even the choice to just center like he is the pivot point for everything that happens in the entire movie he's probably on screen for a good 95 percent of it and he has to do everything right he has to be uh, brash and he has to be comedic and he has to be uh, romantic and he has to do it all and somehow stay likable when one of the climactic scenes has him open hand slap the lead female character in the face. I mean, this is almost an, an impossible performance that he's pulling off here. But I also wonder our interpretation of this character and how we see this character, how different is it from 2023 eyes compared to how they, they would have seen it in 1964 and and like how much more or less empathetic are we towards him than we might have been back then or that we are now because i think the movie still works but i do feel like maybe from the perspective of 2023 i have a little mm. bit more compassion for the jane marrow nicola character than maybe yeah. audiences would have had back then or maybe i'm completely misreading it i'll I, I have to admit a lot of it is colored with knowing michael winner's you know ongoing misogyny for the rest of his career and and also oliver reed's misogyny for a lot of his yeah there's that there's that scene kind of towards the end where the Susie character who i really like that character a lot Mm -hmm. and i feel almost like she is the the female foil to reed's tinker character because you know she's the one that he that he gets the the name of the doctor from because she'd had an abortion and you know she's the one who's with the uh nicholas father even though he's Another, much by older. the way the abortion element i wonder if that made it into the u.s version oh yeah that's true that probably got edited um but you know at that scene when they're in that in those ruins sort of like the old mm-hmm. village and she says the thing about um you know, we're taking them, meaning the tourists, but what if we're the ones being taken? And from her perspective, it's like, well, you know, we think that we're kind of fleecing them, but we're the ones who are stuck here after they leave and go on to their regular Mm -hmm. lives. And, you know, I don't think that she was in love with Nicola's father, like, like Tinker was in love with Nicola. But it's there it's being used as being used 
you're still the one who's who's stuck there while they they get to go off and and do whatever they're doing. So I don't know that Nicola intended to use him. I think from her perspective, she, you know, like like her father says something in the scene at the house when he says, you know, these young women today, they don't they don't they don't cater to these morals of men who want to control mm-hmm. them, which I thought was a really interesting thing for an older person to say in a movie in 1964. And, you know, she's used to doing what she wants, which of course she has that freedom because she has money. I think that, that, that little speech starts with him saying that women have no morality at all until they were, they are forced upon them by men, which again, it's, it's, it's certainly a perspective that someone might have in 1964. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. it's just, you, you I it's, mean, to to be clear, that was a moment where I did have to check my 2023-ness because when he said that, rather than take that as what I think it was meant as, which was a deep dig against femininity, I took it as a, yeah, right on, man. Morality does suck. And then I was like, <laughs> wait, no, that's not what he means. That's not what he means, actually. He's describing a flaw in women. I thought what he was saying is men are weak and must impose their will on women because without that, women will live free and, and have joy and realize they don't need us. That's immediately what I heard and I'm like nope that's not what he meant my bad I'm misinterpreting the movie I think the sexual the sexual politics at its core this idea of like you know turnabout is fair play Nicola just wants to have a relationship with Tinker like Tinker has a relationship with so many other women during you know during that summer season and she the fact that he gets all emotionally wrapped up in things just in the same way that some of the women during his summer flings get wrapped up in him like that married woman that he keeps going back to uh, though I think she actually lives there, but you know, the, there's an emotional element to that. It the idea that we should be more sympathetic for with uh, in terms of Tinker's situation, Oliver Reed's situation, just because he suddenly has developed feelings in a way that other people had previously had for him. I mean, in some way, for a lot of the movie, right. I'm like, oh yeah, he's you know he's getting his just desserts. The fact that they're able to still make that very sympathetic is, I think, a real key core point to the movie, and it's one of the things that I think. I was so impressed by it with the movie. I wonder though, Doug, this is, again, this is maybe where I'm reading something into the movie that maybe is not meant to be there. Sure. But when I see this happening, I don't actually believe that he is falling for her. Literally. What he's falling for is the idea that he could have a connection with someone beyond what he has been doing. I I think the movie to me suggests that the reason you can take these folks whether it is for their money or for their uh, bodies, is because that's what they're there for. They're there for something, and you're going to fulfill their expectation. It's the it's the carny way. Carnies are hmm. are people who are not trustworthy, but in reality, you came to them, motherfucker. So they're going to run the game because that's why you're there. And if you didn't realize that, you were too stupid to have shown up in the first place. That's how the shore. I mean, I'm projecting the shore onto England, but I think it's a similar environment. You came down the shore. If something happened down the shore and it wasn't quite what you wanted, then you probably shouldn't have come down the shore. That's my like real feeling about it. And when I was watching this thing, he he's not into Nicola really. He's into her in the sense that she's smarter than him, which she's not used mm, to. Yes. She's more cultured than him, which he's got a little bit of flavor. You know, Oliver Reed always comes off as like a guy who's read a few plays but could still get in a bar fight, you know? That's that's yeah. who this guy is. Like, he knows a little bit more than his fellow uh, horny degenerate men. Uh, but really, she represents the idea that maybe he has a future. And then the movie wants you to know he doesn't. 
Like the yeah. ending is not about their love affair. It's about the rest of his life, which by the yeah. way is fucked. And I think it, in that sense, for me, it's like part of her, I actually don't think she's insincere about her emotions towards him, even though she's fully ready to move on. I think she's just aware that he's projecting much more onto her than just, I have a crush because he's not a child, you know? I completely agree. He's no longer getting childhood crushes. He's at a point where if he has these kind of feelings and he sees a future, it is something more serious, but that's not where she's at. She's living her life and she knows full well that that's what he's doing is like projecting his life and seeing a way out, you know? And that this is why every English love story that involves a difference in class is always complicated because it's not just about love. It's also about opportunities that are not welcome to you. This man lives on the edge of disaster. If he doesn't take enough pictures in the summer, he could starve, right? That is so precarious. And this young woman, it's not just that she's beautiful and intelligent. She also has a cushion that he can't even imagine what it feels like. It must be interesting that, you know, his really his only possibility of pulling out from that spiral that his life is headed towards is probably you know trying to move outside of this circle trying to basically fail in a different place but when we hear him talk about those stories about him going to london we know it's not going to happen right we know as soon as he brings it up that there's just no possibility when he says wait for me two months down the line we know he's not going we know when he oh, runs it's so to heartbreaking piano at the end it's heartbreaking but it's also self-inflicted you know yeah it, it kind of reminds me of um, uh, the end of that movie. I don't know if you've seen Smithereens. Oh, I have seen it, but I don't remember. Yeah, because this young woman goes to the city and she's, you know, she's kind of a punk outsider and she's trying to um, hook up with this um, character, this Richard Hell character who's in a band. But along the way, she befriends this other guy who lives out of his van. But she doesn't really take him seriously because she she doesn't think that he can get her where she wants to be. And then in the end, he he goes out of town like he leaves. He's like, I can't stay here anymore. And he's like, I'll wait for you. But, you know, you you got to be here at this time. But then she kind of blows him off and circumstances conspire and she she doesn't end up getting to him. She, She tries to find him and he's already left. And then she realizes like, oh, that was my chance and I blew it. Now she's really stuck because she was selfish and she was, you know, using him and she she really feels it. And it's like a really kind of tragic ending. And it does have a similar feeling to this movie where, like you said, you know, nothing's going to come of it. And in fact, one has to even wonder what happened to Tinker before he got to this town because he's not even from there. Yeah. He went there to look for work or to see what was going on and he stayed. I think he stayed because it was probably one of the only places where he could get by on his charm and his mm-hmm. savvy and his good looks and he could kind of be the the king of the of the dipshits in a way. And um it's it's interesting that when he does talk to um I think it's Sammy who's the guy who's um girlfriend gets pregnant yeah, and right. he ends up marrying her sammy's like hey you know it, it could be worse like you know i'll be married and that's this i'll be warm maybe during the winter he said yeah well yeah i think he's kind of at that stage where he's like well, what am i really gonna do you know what i mean like i've got to have something and i don't right now 
and he seems to be a little just a little bit more mature but he seems to be the only one who's kind of on tinker's level in terms of he can have a real conversation with him but then if you notice tinker's like oh yeah you know whatever like he doesn't he doesn't even indicate that he's trying to get out of the situation he's still kind of lying because he's kind of lying to himself well he, well, he he buys into this lie that he has freedom, but all you have to right. do is think of the two scenes with his boss to remember yeah. he doesn't have any fucking freedom at all. He's not he's, to not ahead. to mention he also you know he defines himself by being this this big man amongst this group. But I mean the key mm-hmm. scene in the entire movie is that tennis match where he he's made to look like an oh absolute god fool, right. It's brutal to watch. But also just going it back is. to what you were just saying, I mean that character, his friend getting married, he he you know he's trying to help his friend get his girlfriend an abortion before he, he gets married. And he, you know, even during the best man speech, he's kind of a little bit embarrassing himself a little bit, but the whole yeah. thing is, is if he ends up getting married and is happy, it destroys his entire worldview. He can't, he can't accept people in his circle leaving. And, you know, like he says, they never come back. They never talk to them again afterwards. And, and maybe they're unhappy in, in some cases, but boy, if this guy ends up being happy, you know, what does it mean for his life as he gets older right. and is just stuck in this cycle? I think, though, the way that they talk about their futures, to me, it's I, I, it's just one of the things I noticed the whole movie, which is that I don't know that it has a super sharp criticism of the thing itself, mm. but it continually reminds you that all of these gender politics and these gender roles are wrapped up in economics, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the rich boys and the rich girls they are also trying to have fun and be free, but they have a lot more freedom and a lot more ability to do whatever they want in the way that these other folks don't. So that for his friend, you know, he's going to get married. What that represents to them is not just, I just, I think when you think of American movies where a bunch of kids are sitting around, I say kids, 20 somethings are sitting around talking about how Mm -hmm. they're not ready to get married. It's always presented in a way of because I need to fuck more, right? And that's all that's at stake is is the fucking. In this context, it's really <laughs> clear that like it's not just that, even though he keeps saying that. Also, then you have to get a real job and you have yeah. to live a right. real life. And you can't just go and fucking drink and party and do whatever. And yeah, you got I, you gotta take on responsibilities. And I think the conception of that is not just what we tend to think of, which is mature or immature. It's we need reliable working units to make this economy work. And these fucking uh, carny uh, shore people, they play a role. But if you're going to be a real human, i.e. a worker, then you're going to have to play by these other rules. Side note. The other thing I kept thinking this whole time is like in a world where the sexual politics are not so fraught with like fear and hiding things, none of this shit would work, right? Like the, one mm-hmm. of the one of the distances here is not just the misogyny, which I think is really there. It's also just the sexual politics because it's just like, yeah, you just fuck around. Like in 2023, kids are like, I don't know, fuck whoever you want. What's the problem? Like the, the very thing that allows the system to work is this sense of like – Will they, won't they? Let's not mm-hmm. talk about what we're actually doing. We don't really acknowledge what's happening till the very last minute. Afterwards, they're probably not going to tell anyone because they don't want to like have anyone judge them. You know, like the fact that he gets away with this so long, it's like, does do, do people not get together and go, <laughs> yeah, I slept with uh, with uh, fucking uh, Tinker the other day. You did? I did too. Ah, oh, fuck that guy. You know, it's like this, the secrecy <laughs> is part of what like 
keeps this system, quote unquote, going. And it's only in a world that is both so uh, patriarchal and so sex afraid that this can work at all. And they could just have normal, like, happy lives if people weren't so uptight about sex. But whatever. I also That's think a really character, good point. The character, he has a snobbiness to him. Both yep. in, you know, yes. certainly in regards to the, 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 what were they called in the movie? Gronk, grockles, grockles, right? Yeah, you know, the tourists <laughs> coming in. He has a real attitude about it, but the way that he refers to like their transistor radios, and then when the character yeah. later, it's like maybe we should get a television, and you know, just the idea. It's like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm above all that. But when he actually encounters people who are of that higher, you know, uh, wealth status. They he can't fit in with them whatsoever. He hates them immediately because he recognizes that they're they're exactly the kind of phony that he was aspiring to be earlier in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do want to talk. Oh, go ahead. I think that is just also common because they think of these people as as cows to be milked, right? That's right. Like, yeah, marks. They, they they need them so bad. I mean, in a way, the, these folks are. The movie made me think of the movie Parasite just because. They are human, you know, living in this place, you become like a human parasite, whether it's for money or sex. We have to get everything we can out of these visitors before they go away. So there's there's a bit of an elitism there. But I think it also really fits Oliver Reed, who technically, you know, he is upper class. That is how mm-hmm. he grew up. But he always gives the vibe of like, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. And I think when he's in roles where it's less like he's some posh asshole and more like he's more of a middle class dude who just happens to I don't know be slightly better educated but he still has a bit of a grit to him I yeah, think that comes absolutely. across more whereas when he's just a posh asshole it works but then you're like that's a less likable character really <laughs> yeah, he can walk in those two worlds for sure that's a good point um and one thing I wanted to say is well just just on that note there was a review that I I read a quote from that said um they didn't think that his accent fit in with the class level he was supposed to be in, which I could see that. But considering he's not actually from that town, you know, you don't really know where he's from. So I think that mystery that, that lets his accent kind of work. Uh, also, I've seen he's... his accent described as a public school accent. I mean, he's playing a character, though, right? You know, like, even when he's encountering all the people, I mean, we see him switch accents all throughout the movie. Maybe Well, that's another slightly thing I upper to class, too. Upper class accent is just part of the affectation that he's put on. Yes, I mean, he has so many yes. more affectations. Yeah, like, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But the other thing I wanted to bring up was, I feel like, and you just said, Liam, about American movies, um, you know, with the same generation and and you know, at that time or even later. This, I feel, is a really British film. Yeah. <laughs> um, and not just because it takes place there and it's about class issues, which, of course, you know, that makes it British. But so many of the actors are very, like, they weren't really well known outside of British theater or cinema. Um, and I feel like it, it doesn't feel like a movie that I don't know what American audiences would have even thought of it at the time. Like I read the variety review and it just, it didn't, it didn't understand the movie at all. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, But it made me think of 
those angry young man films of the 50s, which came from novels, but, uh, you know, lots of them were made into cinema. Um, one in particular is Look Back in Anger with uh, Richard Burton, which, uh, I mean, those characters, they come across as a little bit more downtrodden because they're they're not, there's no, you know, parties for them to go and sort of uh, fake their way through. Um, and they're very sort of navel-gazing, um, but there's a lot of substance abuse and um, misogyny to a certain extent. Um, and I feel like, you know, those films kind of morphed in a way into British social realism with like directors like Ken Loach, which of course those movies are a little bit more political. But, you know, basically these angry young man films, um, I mean, they're they're like anti-establishment, you know, talking about the class divide, um, things like that, where, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of not a thing that you would see in American movies. I mean, you might, you might have the rebellion against the status quo, like something like the graduate or whatever that in the sixties, but without that class distinction, that whole working class aesthetic and how you're kind of trapped in that. It's almost like a caste system where you don't really have that in American cinema. Cause it's, that's more about like, well, you can, you can work hard and you can get past that. I mean, obviously, you know, that wasn't, there are movies that show that you're kind of stuck in, in that position. Yeah, there's no, there's no but, American dream in the UK, right? I mean, no, that's, that's, no, there's that's, not. That, that's, and, but the idea that in the late fifties, that this is stuff that mainstream cinema was portraying working class lives uh, as, as uh, you know, portraying people as being stuck in those lives because yeah. of that lack of mobility. I mean, that must've had such a huge effect on the artists and actors and everybody who was coming up during that time period. But yeah, what a strange, like this is 1964. The movies that I really think of when I think of like the British New Wave or the kitchen sink dramas um, yeah. are things like Billy Liar, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Those are early 60s movies, like 61, 62. This is literally like two years later and you can still feel the echoes of it. But there's mm -hmm. something else happening. For one thing, no one would ever have the kind of fun that they have at the beginning of this movie in those movies. Right, exactly. And, you know, the first few minutes of this movie, I thought I was in for a hard day's night because they're on the train. Mm. I mean, it feels like, right? You got I the, thought that the, as well. You got the music playing. It's like, oh, okay. So this is like a mod type movie we're, we're getting into. But it's not. But there are elements of that too, right? Because it is very... There is a kind of peppiness to the youth culture that's on display, even though there is a little bit of a lot of melodrama actually as well. But it, it really is kind of it feels like an in-between period because a couple of years after this, you're going to have uh, the, the you know, when color starts coming into the picture, things become a lot more, um, you know, sceney, right? With London and right. all the kind of movies that'll that'll take over from that point. But this is a really interesting period of British filming. I agree. Uh, one thing I did like and we had you talked about it before is all the different sort of affectations that Reed does in the movie. And I have to say, I really like all of those kind of voice impressions that he does where, you know, like something that I would say is very common now where, you know, like I'll talk to somebody and then I'll, I'll kind of imitate that voice, you know, of what the person said, like <laughs> to, to convey the, the tone, I'll just do like put on an accent or make a funny voice or whatever. And he does that throughout this movie. 
it feels so modern in a weird way. Like when he shows up at the party at Nicholas' father's house and he <laughs> says the thing like, oh, the rolls was being repaired. And then he, he does like another weird accent later where he almost sounds like Wolfman Jack. Yeah. And yep. Um, he does that a lot. <laughs> and then at the party when he meets her, he says something and she's just like, oh, are you one of those flip talkers? Which I actually looked that term up and I know that it's meant to be like to be flippant, but I didn't know if it was like a thing, you know, like, oh, these kids today and they're flip talking, you know, like if it was an actual term, I couldn't find any evidence of that. It doesn't mean it, it wasn't a thing. But when they do it in that scene, it's basically just like riffing, yeah. like puns and wordplay. And and what I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say like Gilmore Girls dialogue, but <laughs> it is kind of that like Kevin Smith sort of fast you know, repartee um, that I really, I really the, want it to be like a trend, like a, like something that was going on with the youth, because I yeah. when, when I see it in British movies at this time, I find it so distracting, and I think, why are these people dickheads? Like it just <laughs> something about it really bothers me. So the thought that actually it was like a youth affectation, I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool, I'm into that then. But like the the idea that no, 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 it's just people who write scripts just like to write weird scripts. That that's less fun for me. I do wonder if it's had, you know it does seem like there's a British tradition that appreciates cleverness and wordplay, and I think that that probably plays into it. But the thing that differentiates this kind of dialogue in this movie compared to you know the the american examples that that you use whether it be you know any kind of fast talking back and forth quip i mean really you could even you could go as far back to screwball comedies and howard hoxton oh yeah going back definitely but 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 the thing that differentiates the dialogue here is it's a competition right you're trying to right. get one up and you're trying to stifle the other person you're, you're going to be so clever that they're not going to have a response for you and that's the weird thing. That's what you were saying, Lee. We're just like, it becomes combative at that point. You, it's you like, know what it, why are you being assholes to each other? You know what it reminds me of? So is, true. Uh, is anyone who's ever seen um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm-hmm. when they play yeah. the game questions? Yes. Because it's, it's like that. Because the goal is to have a response that does not respond in any direct way to what the other person meant to say. You know what I mean? Like what they're, yeah. what the content of what they said is you're responding to some aspect of it that has nothing to do with the content. Yeah, and that yeah. also sounds very witty. It's just you're, 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 you know, in a sense, the flippantness is that you are going past what they're saying and running sort of linguistic games around them. But I was also thinking about that more direct thing, Doug, which is <laughs> that the, you know, English is very much, it's, it's always actually really confused me getting all these, um, very strict rules about English as a child and thinking like this, this shit must have come from England. And then realizing like England is a place where um, on one hand, there are these strict rules about the language, but also ingenuity in the language is actually celebrated. And Mm. a bunch of words were actually invented by this one jerk off playwright that we still (laughs) read, you know, like that man invented so many fucking words that weren't real words at the time. And meanwhile, I got to learn all these goddamn rules. Get out of my face. I mean, this movie invented words that became part of the lexicon in the UK, right? But I just like the idea. It's like there's that really fine line when it comes to intentional misunderstanding and trying to one-up somebody. A real fine line line between Noel Coward and Amelia Bedelia, right? Where you're just being being, uh, obtuse for your own, you know, enjoyment or because you're just ignorant about what's going on. But that scene is so important because he finally 
meets a match, right? He meets yeah. someone who is willing to face him head on and is not going to be intimidated by him. And at first, it's more of a curiosity, I think, than anything else. And like you said, Liam, it maybe in the end, it's not love. It maybe it's just that, oh, this is something different. And it, it represents a life that maybe I could have when maybe that's not a realistic wish when you look at the bigger picture. I think it could it could become love, right? Like I think a lot of relationships start with fascination and then they grow into love, right? They don't necessarily become that. But, you know, the, the ending for me, besides like realizing that, of course, this character would resort to violence when he's feeling the most powerless. Like, uh-huh. his powerlessness is finally revealed and he's going to hit her. That's just like, it's such a, it's such a, like, a, a fulfilling of a man dream sort of thing to do. But the other part of it that really stuck out to me is the idea in which um, maybe she hasn't been, like, she she's also evasive of him. Like, like he is evasive of her the way he is with all uh, women and and he slowly gets more direct and she continues to be evasive it's entirely possible that she does have legitimate feelings for him and what she's avoiding is the just knowing that whatever this is has to be temporary and so you know maybe they're just both fascinated with each other but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a future right and so like I, there's something about that that i found really interesting partly because i do think the movie is not there's some really compelling female characters, but I do think there's kind of a weird underlying maleness to the movie. Mm-hmm. And yet, I I don't know. It, it, if the movie meant to make her the villain, it, it didn't work for me. No, right. When it, when it ends, I think... I mean, the, you know, the villains are patriarchy and capitalism, right? But one, yeah. is work, one is working for him and the other one is working for her. And in this case capitalism wins and patriarchy loses but in another case it could go the other direction it's it's always you never know which one's gonna win with those two go head to head that moment right where he hits her but everything surrounding that like her admission that she's leaving the next day that she's you know planning on heading to greece the next year that that he is it's not that he isn't important to her it's just that he's not part of her plan, right? right. I mean, yeah. she has a whole life that it already was, was existing before she came there and will exist afterwards. It's not that she can't make room for him in these periods. And like, well, you know, she seems legitimately happy at the idea of him coming to London and, you know, him being all brash and like, you're going to have to tell your boyfriend to get lost, all that sort of shit. But like, that's not the real world, right? <laughs> that's just not, yeah. that, that. that is the exactly the sort of lines, like when he tells that, that girl after he has sex with her that he loves her. And it's just such an empty statement. In oh, that that's just, something just so that he's saying, cringy. Right? Yeah. Le- and he's like, oh, listen to this music. And she's yeah, like, oh, I, mean, I could get a touch. He's just like, oh, what? Oh, oh And God. to the movie's credit, they know he's being an asshole in that scene. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, and so and like you said, Liam, if the I don't think that the movie is trying to portray her as an asshole. I think it's just portraying it as a sad situation where you know she look, she. <laughs> I don't think she's irreparably damaged by what happens in this movie, though you could make a case that he is that 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 there is going to be that emptiness because of what he's had a taste of and what he's seen that even when he goes back to to dump that stuff you know he dumps that piano into the water when he's walking away he takes a look back he does not look happy right Mm -hmm. i i I think the the moment in that scene though that is so patriarchal is that what that scene needs is for him to finally do an act of pure sincerity like part of the thing with this movie is they are not real with each other. They are at times 
honest and and intimate but there's always a bit of distance that is created yeah. mm-hmm. and we and we expect that to some extent some of romance is distance some of romance is performative but often within it there is sincerity and so then whoever you know uh, uh, whoever decided that this scene that needs so deeply for him to finally reveal true emotions that violence was the answer yeah. that's just because of the society they live in he could have easily cried a little bit or done any you know any number of emotional things could have revealed that he's finally letting his actual emotions out which by the way is also patriarchal because it's in a moment of weakness right that's when he's finally can be emotional right but, but the right. fact that the way he's going to finally show legitimate emotions is via violence is just very much a manly sort of like well of course now he's so emotional he's going to hit her like or or he could hug her right like that would also work it just in their worldview oh that doesn't work for the character and i'm like yeah of yeah. course it doesn't you fucking dickheads well, sincerity see, comes from vulnerability, right? And this is a character yeah. that is terrified to show himself as being vulnerable. You and, see but maybe, it on maybe his rightfully face. So. <laughs> when, when he falls, like after they're blowing the bubbles and they sort of like fall in the bed and there's like, he laughs, but then like his face looks so vulnerable and then it cuts to her and she's like, looks almost disgusted. Like she's like, oh, you, you think this is real? And he leans to kiss her, and then they get interrupted. That scene is just—it's amazing. I, I, I had to go back and watch it a couple times. How beautiful is it when later so in the well movie done. they're having that conversation outside, and she leaves, and then there are people in the background blowing bubbles, and it's just to remind you. Oh of yeah, yeah that was so, just so well done. Stuff. Yeah, so well done, and it's a family too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really good. Um, I mean, it seems like we all really enjoyed this film, but I guess I should ask specifically, you know, what did you think of the movie? Like in terms of in terms of Reed's career and his performance, but also just the movie itself and kind of where it, it fits into um, British cinema, specifically that sort of, you know, class class structure uh you know social realism angry young man kind of genres i mean i see it it's funny to look at his imdb profile and immediately before this movie he's doing tv stuff he's doing the saint he's doing episodes of the third man tv show mm-hmm. and then immediately afterwards he's doing more tv right because it's not this wasn't like a huge blockbuster where he's like the big name this was a movie that was designed to be around him and to help raise his profile move him towards stardom but he wasn't there quite yet but he was only a couple of years away and if you just look like you go from 64 65 66 once you hit like 66 67 he's making like five movies a year tv is in the rear view mirror he's on his mm-hmm. way to being being a star he doesn't get there with a it doesn't even have to be movies like this but roles like this where he just shows yeah. himself able to do anything and he's also like he's not a traditional handsome lead actor i mean he is handsome and he is very sexy and he's very alluring and and attractive generally in this movie but what really comes comes you know comes out of the screen is the fact that it feels kind of like he can do anything like he he just has so much life like you were saying like all those voices all the silly dancing that he does he just lights up this screen in a way where you feel like oh this guy is has a power to him that you rarely see 
in movies. And what is he like legitimately 25, 26 at this point? I mean, pretty unbelievable 26. stuff. Yeah, 26. I mean, still a young actor, but um, yeah, but commands the especially screen, by like, those by those standard by those those days standards. Like now, things are you know way it's skewed so much younger. But at yeah. that point, like that was still really young. I mean, that scene outside the, the the opening scene when the train passes and there's just that close up on his face. That is like a breathtaking scene. It's also a uh, star making scene. You know, it really is. Oh, that. absolutely. Like, like, this is the guy. I'll tell you, Michael Winner, he obviously he wanted Oliver. I mean, he worked with him a ton oh, of times. Yeah. But he, he was like, I know what I have here and I'm going to yeah, show him. Up. He definitely like, he did. Is, yeah. Like he is an otherworldly talent. And that's what he did. Thoughts, Liam? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> sorry, I was just, I was like, oh, I guess we're good. But I'm like, oh, I guess I didn't say anything myself. Well, I mean, I don't know how familiar I am with the traditions of British cinema of this time. Like, I don't feel like I'm an expert. I can No, say, I'm not either. I can say that um, there's a vibe I get in certain 60s films where we're going to lay out a bunch of things that we're very concerned about, right? Like mm-hmm. issues that are on our heart. And then we're just going to end the movie. And that's cool, right? Because <laughs> art doesn't resolve anything. And part of me appreciates that because I do think, especially in American cinema later on, there's a real urge that like every thread must be you know sewn back in. Like every plot line yeah. must be And every quandary must have an answer and and cannot be left hanging Uh, on the other hand at other times it's a little bit unsatisfying you know i think with this movie i think it works very well but Mm -hmm. it reminded me of other movies i've watched that similarly are like man huh like exploitation you know men do it to women (laughs) rich people do it to poor people all right, see you later. You know, like that's the whole movie, you know? Like that's te- And then the song comes in, the happy yeah. song. It's yeah, like, I think, oh I think god. That's, I think that's technically what this movie does, but yeah. it's a much more compared to other similar movies, I think this is a lot more satisfying because yeah. there's a certain tragic nature to it and I think for modern viewers there will be a temptation that I think is anachronistic, but is okay, which is to say the tragedy is not just right. Uh, the tragedy of like, he's in one place in the world and she's in a different place or the tragedy of like um, the timing of their relationship or whatever more personal thing you want to take it to. I think a more modern viewer might say, man, if this whole society wasn't so fucked yeah. When it, both economically and socially, you know, if it wasn't for the patriarchy and the misogyny of it all or whatever other sort of thing, uh, then this situation wouldn't be so stark. And, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, in fact, I am almost pretty sure that that's not really what the movie intends. That's OK. If you're watching it and you have those insights, don't feel bad about that. That's how well, that's what you're thinking about. And I think in that yeah. sense, this movie's really useful. I, I actually think. Even as I was watching it, I'm fully aware of like like Doug was saying, like there there's a lot here that maybe is a bit off putting. But for me, it all sort of fit in a certain pattern that I almost found it surprising how much I was able to think about it in a more um, you know advanced kind of progressive way because yeah. it sets out a lot of concerns that we have now and we're different now in a lot of ways but we still have echoes of a lot of this shit right and um in a sense it's a bit alienating because it is so british and i think 
um, in America, we like to pretend that class is not as much as it is. And Canada, right. I assume you guys just all live together in the woods, so you probably. Don't have any class. <laughs> um, but like, but I think I, but I think the issues of how, um, how marriage, when it's seen less as a commitment of love to the future and more as a useful unit of economic belonging mm. uh, that when that can feel like a trap it's like yeah we still have that now like in yeah. 2023 when we're supposedly so open-minded people still yeah. get married because they feel like they just gotta and that's psychotic yeah. but it's real and so i think there are there are parts of this movie that will be alienating but there are parts that will feel hauntingly familiar and that's upsetting but it's it's true and i and i like that also side note as i suggested before uh but and i said on letterbox it also was like weird for me because i grew up going to the shore i had friends who grew up the shore you know like the beach community that is not nice enough for the ultra rich but still like there's this line where one of the rich people says is it true that you live here in the winter? Yeah, right. Yeah. And Oliver Reed goes, well, that is what they built the houses for. <laughs> yeah. there, is a, there is a vibe that people who go to places like that have where it's almost like you don't live, like you don't exist. That's right. right. Like yeah. when we leave, you just cease to be. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Like the people, the, you're not there. And and in, in a way, the community fosters that. The number of restaurants yeah. and businesses that just close, like they're like, oh, it's October, we're done. And they just shut shut down is sad, right? It's It can be really frustrating to live there, especially as a kid when you don't understand what's going on. Uh, on the other hand, the attitude also isn't real. Like those people do exist. And yeah. they're not. You know, oh no! I went down. I went to the the boardwalk, and the game was rigged. It's like, yeah, because if they don't get your money now, they're never going to get it. You just shouldn't have played the game then, you idiot. Like my vibe when people have just a just a a, a real animosity towards the general feeling of like when I'm at the shore, I'm being scammed. I'm like, yeah, yeah of course you are. What else are they going to do, man? There's nothing else going on there. If they don't scam you of a couple bucks, what the fuck are they going to do? You know. So like, I part of me is a little like, you know, uh, obviously the hunt in the sense of them trying to get laid all summer long is a bit ridiculous. But the way that that represents the vibe of the place being one of, we got to get our shit now because eventually we don't have, there's no economy here. Nothing is happening. Like that is dark. And I think represents something that I'm aware of a little bit, not as stark as this. This is, you know, it's England in the sixties. So it's a, a bit more, uh, in you know, in, in relief than it would be when I was growing up, but it's still something that feels kind of familiar. And goes back to what we what that character says, right? About who's being yep. taken, yeah. right? It, it, yeah, because I mean that that is reflected in anywhere where tourists come and you know spend a lot of their money and then leave again. You are entirely reliant if you live in that place on that money coming in. You need those people to come, but what's the long term goal? Yeah, I, I mean, I can definitely relate to that having grown up in New Orleans and living there for over 20 years that even now when people say like, oh, I've always wanted to go there. What's it like? It's like, what's it like to live there or what's it like to visit there? Because I don't know how to explain what it's like to a tourist. All I know is that it depends on tourism <laughs> And the, the, the tourism there is just so frustrating and so dependent. And so, you know, oh, the food's good, Bourbon Street, voodoo, whatever. And it's just like, it makes me just 
cringe, you know, and and just knowing like what a messed up city it is and, and how how easily things can go wrong there and how so many people are living on the verge of just nothing. And it, it does feel like telling somebody to go there and, and pump money into the economy. It, it's like, yeah, OK, but also it, it just feels unsustainable. And so I'm, I'm always really torn when someone gets excited when they find out I'm from there because I know what it's like to live there and, and how messed up it is. And and yeah, I mean, I don't I don't feel like I was ever I was never part of the tourism industry, like I didn't work in the service industry there. But I know so many people who did and they definitely have a very cynical view of, you know, tourists. And there's definitely they get talked about in a way that's like, oh, yeah, you know, these people. Well, they're, they're here again. Well, on on the other hand, if any listeners want to come visit Newfoundland, we will welcome you with open arms. Oh, I'd to go spend, to Newfoundland. To, to spend money there. And I will screech you in myself in uh, St. John's if that is what it takes to get you to buy a lot of our local duh, tat. <laughs> duh, don't pretend you didn't run away from there as soon as you could. <laughs> Hey, I'm going back there in literally four days, Liam. Oh, I'm <laughs> and, envious. And, and you're going to have a good time. And then by the end, you're going to say, I can't wait to get back home. Yeah, well, I'll tell it's you, always the, like that. The, I want listeners now. Actually, that's a really good point. Since this is my uh, final recording before visiting my family in Newfoundland, I wanted to, I want listeners to note on our next episode whether they can hear a difference in my accent once I return. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Because I'm going to go see my family, too. Yeah. So... I'd, although by the time we record again for this, I I'll probably, <laughs> probably will have faded. But yeah, I always pick up a bit of my dad's uh, New Orleans accent when I go visit him. So what does that sound like? Funny. Give us a little impression of what that might. Sound. Oh, God. It's almost like a Brooklyn. It's almost like a Brooklyn accent. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a lot of uh, dropped R's and, uh, you know, it's like a real it's like a real Brooklyn kind of a I was hoping like, for something a little more Creole flavored. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't know anybody who really talks like that. I mean, I do what? have I, I do guarantee. have Oh my god. Oh, I have this Okay, so I have this thing. I need to get a battery for it. It's really old, the battery died, but it's a thing called Cajun in your pocket. It's like a keychain. And you press these buttons and then it's like a it's like a pre-recorded, you know, like the soundboard that they used to have. Yeah, like, no. Arnold Schwarzenegger. So it's like that. This is like from the early 90s. So there's like all these little Cajun phrases. Oh my god. Oh. Just drop my phone. Sorry about that. Uh yeah, it's it's pretty funny, but I, I have to what I'll do is I'll I have a recording. If, uh, I, I'm not going to send this to everybody listening, but I have a recording that I'll send to to Doug and Liam of my dad telling a joke, <laughs> and you can hear his accent. So maybe, maybe we can we can convince Leslie to let us put it into the episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, we never mentioned it. This movie's beautiful to look at, and that's because oh Nicholas yeah, Rowe, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas Rogue was the cinematographer after I think we Ooh. even mentioned it at the end of the castaway episode. But yeah, I mean yeah. that's another thing that separates us, by the way, from like the kitchen sink type movies, which tend to be not f- flat and drab, but certainly don't have the the kind of beauty that this movie shows off. 
Yeah, this is a very aspirational movie from a visual perspective. That's a really good point. So uh, does anybody have anything they want to share? Any any updates, any news before we talk about the movie we're going to do next time? I, I just going to bring up, we're going to talk a lot more about Michael Winner and Oliver Reed in other in future episodes because they work together so often. This is their first collaboration, and that's you know that's really important to note that because they they obviously got along very very well. Uh, if you look at Michael Winner's uh, biography, he mentions Oliver Reed a lot. But I also thought it was interesting that he mentioned that Oliver Reed was already drinking heavily at the age of what twenty yeah. six here on the set, and it's just like boy, you want to talk about why he may look older even than he actually is in the movie is because that is a man who, as you were saying, Liam, he aged to 40 by the time he was 30 and was able to play those roles for a long time, right up until the point where he couldn't. Um, yeah, it's still just... Still a beautiful man, though. Let's, let's still, not hey, look, pretend. Hey, look. And uh, uh, would stay beautiful he's got for a, a he's while. He's got a walk that talks. Yeah, he's well, got a walk. He's got a walk in this movie that I would say is on a par with, James Spader, who is an actor who has a very distinctive walk. That's a real, it's like very sexy, but unconsciously, unselfconsciously so. When I talked about misogyny earlier and in regards to the director of this movie, Michael Winner had, had, has, before his death a few years back, I think it was in 2013 or something like that, um, he was on Twitter. He was kind of a controversial figure generally. He was uh, on TV a lot in the UK. But okay. I mean, he got he got Me Too pretty hard after his death. Ugh. And, you know, I think Marina Sirtis, who oh, shows gross. up in, uh, Marina Sirtis, who was in Death Wish 3, and she has a pretty unpleasant scene in that movie. And she, you know, her statement afterwards is that, you know, it's not nice to speak ill of the dead, but I hope that Michael Winter is burning in hell for all eternity. Ooh. So she obviously had some bad experience with him, and she wasn't the only one. But just generally, I mean, he was a big Thatcherite, like piece of shit, oh, conservative gross. in the 80s. Gross. Um, and he said a lot of horrible, horrible things, but that's not, well, we'll get into that as we get into yeah, closer. Yeah, I'll, to I'll do some areas. research. I'll do some research on that for sure. I've actually been getting a lot of news about Oliver Reed in my Google alerts. So uh, I'll have to. What's he been up to lately? The socials. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, from the grave. Just some interesting articles that come up, you know, some some things that uh, I think would be interesting to talk you about. Know, I will say one just quick thing uh, briefly, and I'm sure this is something that uh, I think you actually uh, directed me to this sort of. Sorry, I'm actually waffling because I'm trying to get a name here. Um well, I'm sure you'll be able to tell me, Leslie. Uh, Ken Russell's widow on Facebook. Oh, Lisey. Yeah, Lisey. She posts like lots of Oliver Reed-based content. Because oh, yeah. Because uh, obviously she, she adored Oliver and Ken Russell had such a strong relationship with Oliver Reed. Uh, just a pro follow on Facebook if you can. She she has lots of behind-the-scenes stuff. Obvious, and just, I mean, also, if you're a big fan of Ken Russell, uh, as of the time that this episode has come out they just released a huge collection of his work on the criterion network the the streaming service uh and I'm, i don't know actually offhand whether there's any oliver reed movies in there i know the devils is not showing but uh hey ken russell and oliver reed's careers are inextricably linked and uh i'm sure we're going to be talking about ken russell at some point in the future but yeah give her a follow on on facebook and see a lot of really great oliver reed photos yeah definitely definitely 
So next time, uh, to go back into the sort of Oliver Reed vault is uh, <laughs> the film that I mentioned earlier, uh, which came up before this, which is Joseph Losey's The Damned, also called These Are the Damned. So that's from uh, 1961, and it stars uh, Oliver Reed. Uh, he has a supporting role, but it also stars McDonald Carey, who you might know if you ever watched the soap opera Days of Our Lives. Um, <laughs> it's based on a novel called The Children of Light. And interestingly, it was a Hammer Films production, despite the fact that it's not really a horror film per se. It's more of like a science fiction thriller. Um, but it is really dark and really interesting and Oliver Reed is a definite standout in the cast. Um, uh, don't want to say too much more because I feel like it's the kind of thing where you should go in cold and not not uh, know too much about it. But it is a bit hard to find. Um, there's probably a UK Blu-ray release or DVD release, but uh, you might be able to catch it on Turner Classic Movies. I know they play it quite frequently. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that again because that was a memorable experience watching it the first time. And yeah, that's, I've, I I've, think, I've, it for I've, me. I have not <laughs> seen it. I haven't seen it before, so and I'm going to go in cold, so I'm very, very curious to, mm -hmm. to check it out. It certainly sounds, from the little I know about it, exactly like the sort of thing that I would enjoy. Oh, yeah. It's, it's something else. Well, if any listener want to check out more episodes of Further Reading, they can do so over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, where we have our whole archive of not only further reading, but also uh, shows devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy. Someday I'll get a blurb, like, just I'll just have my telephone, uh, sorry, my uh, elevator pitch where I just get can can say all of them in a row, all the uh, different shows that we have. <laughs> but check that out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. But if you want to find the latest episodes of what we do, you can always find those over at the Cinepunks Network work at cinepunks.com liam tell people more about that <laughs> well you know we host a ton of shows over there uh not just cinema sports board and the <clears throat> myriad of topics that we like to cover but shows like uh uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult film podcast, uh, Tomb of Ideas, an exploration of uh, Marvel horror comics, uh, The Carnage Report uh, for the latest in horror news and views, all that kind of stuff. So check it out, Cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, and Cinepunks is on various social media platforms, whether that's uh, the, the Meta Family or the Blue Sky or whatever the fuck Elon has going on, and on all those things, it's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. All right, sounds good. Until next time, I'm Leslie Hatton, and you've been listening to Further Reading. Bye. See ya. I'm telling you how. system it's crazy it's cruel you think that's dead baby find out to end it's cruel come on with a sweet talk be moody and mean give nothing away keep paying your hay some of you make the windows hiding get into the system and shine through the system is fine when you reach the end of